You're listening to Brave Girls with Tracy M, where we choose to empower you to be a better leader, mentor, and coach in the world. We'll share stories of people who have achieved great heights by overcoming adversity and rising to the challenge, all while pursuing their passions. These courageous people will inspire you to have faith in yourself and take bold action. Right here with the host of Brave Girls, Tracy M. Episode 16, Rethinking Possible, with Rebecca Faye Smith-Galli. Today's episode of Brave Girls with Tracy M. is one of my absolute favorites. I interviewed the amazing Rebecca Faye Smith-Galli, who wrote the book, Rethinking Possible. If you haven't read this memoir, I'd recommend you get a copy. Her writing is prolific inspirational, and she shares her story and thoughts on what it's like to be in a wheelchair and how to deal with grief, obstacles, and challenges that life sends our way. We talk about the writing process when you write a memoir and you're telling stories that are bigger than your life. Becky's style is captivating and draws you into the emotions of the events she's had to deal with to include her brother's tragic death when she was 17 and her sudden paralysis. She's been able to connect her with her readers through her writing. And we talk about the cycles of grief and how to allow it a place in your life that doesn't completely consume you. As Becky says, when we love deeply, we grieve deeply. We also talk about processing anger and why you shouldn't isolate in anger or grief. Becky talks about her journey as a mom and all the lessons that she's learned. She also talks about her divorce and her relationship with her ex-husband and his second wife today. On the episode, she also reads the letter that she wrote to her daughter and son-in-law on their wedding day. I'm sure you'll love the wisdom and guidance that Becky has to share in the letter. Becky's incredibly resilient, and she's living her purpose through her writing, and I know that you'll be able to learn from her on this podcast. So let's go. Welcome to Brave Girls with Tracy M. Today, I'm so excited that we have Rebecca, Becky, Faye, Smith, Galli, author of Rethinking Possible, a memoir of resilience with us today. She's a weekly columnist who lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and she writes about love, loss, and healing. She's a Moorhead Kane scholar, or she was a Moorhead Kane scholar at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Then she was employed at IBM, where she was the recipient of their Gold Circle Award for Marketing Excellence. She survived many significant losses. Her 17-year-old brother, his death, her son's degenerative disease and subsequent death, her daughter's autism, her divorce, and nine days later, her paralysis from traverse myelitis, which is a rare spinal cord inflammation that began as the flu. And this has then launched her into an unexpected but prolific writing career. So welcome to the show, Becky. I'm so glad to have you on the show and uh, get to hear your story and share your story with our listeners. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Great, great. So I know I, um, I also subscribe to your Thoughtful Thursday emails, and I think that they're really, really inspirational where you um, really try and inspire people to stay positive um, as you um, are out in the world um, living your life, uh, your new life, really, um, since um, for several years now. So tell us a little bit about um, how you came to write your book. That's a good question and a lengthy question because <laughs> it, it probably took me um, 
was counting 20 years. Uh, yeah, sometimes I'll say my, my book is almost old enough to have a drink because uh, she's almost 21 years old. But uh, it really started out of necessity to communicate with people after my paralysis. So I was a sales and marketing gal. Um, I had four active children. Uh, my divorce had been final nine days and then this strange uh, affliction transverse myelitis hit me and in six hours I was paralyzed. So at the time I was very hopeful that I would regain a full function, a third recover fully, a third recover partially, and a third recover not at all. But I was determined to be in at least the top two thirds. Uh, but meanwhile, I had these kids, my kids were three, four, six, and nine years old at the time. I had these kids, this active life, and but I was in a wheelchair and it was really, really hard for me to connect as I, as I used to. So that was 1997, about the time uh, email was coming into to play here. So I uh, had a, somebody talk, loaded, gave me a computer and loaded up arrows and, and I, could, I figured out that I, I could email people about my life. And that really kind of launched a writing, a regular writing. This is way before blogs. I would uh, collect people's emails and, and email each one of them. <laughs> I finally figured out how to do a distribution list. Uh, so, but they were very personal to me. I would talk about what it was like to, to be out and about in a wheelchair, what it was like to try to play soccer with my son from the wheelchair who was still wanting me to be mom. So those columns, somebody said, you know what, Becky, I, I think you could do, you know, create one of those for be an op-ed at, at the Baltimore Sun. So I submitted it, and it was that one about playing soccer with my son, and they published it. So that, wow. yeah, I was, I was shocked. I mean, my dad uh, had his own newspaper column, and he was so funny. He, he said, Becky, you made it above the fold. I didn't even know what that meant, but apparently if you're above the fold, that's a good thing. So I was Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You have arrived. So with the byline and everything, so that started, uh, thought, well, I could do this from the wheelchair. I can't go out and do sales and marketing, but I could do this. And it connected me with friends and family all over the world. Uh, so people would pass them along and read them and pass them to other people. And soon I've had like 400 people that were reading these emails. So after the published column, I submitted it to a local weekly and that began a monthly column from where I sit at a Baltimore weekly that lasted 12 years. And then when my dad um, died, he wanted me to continue his newspaper column in West Virginia. So I did that. And then I did my daughter with autism. I did a, um, column about her transitioning to adulthood. So with all these columns, I wound up, um, somebody said, you know, maybe this would, should be a book. And I said, well, you know, so many crazy things have happened to me. Nobody's going to believe it anyway. So I might as well get the facts straight and get it in a format that I like and uh, tell my story my way. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, I love that you did your certificate of creative nonfiction at Stanford um, in 2012 to 2014. So talk about that and how that, you know, really propelled you in terms of learning how to tell stories and really, you know, honing your craft. Exactly. And I think that was that was a difficult, difficult um, period. My son was in his senior year in high school. My daughter had just gotten engaged, so it was a crazy time. But 
I really, after, when you write a 500 word column is a lot different than writing a book. And over those 20 years, the book had had many forms. One time it was a journal of uh, hope and determination with it, which was email journals. It was a, a self-help book at one point. Uh, but I went to a writer's conference and got strong feedback that this really is a memoir. And so to do memoir, I took this class and it was tough. It was really tough learning how to tell not only, you know, my story, 500 words at a time in a column format, but you had to have this thing they called a narrative art, where you had to tell a story that was bigger than your life. Uh, so that really made me rethink exactly what is the story, what have I learned, and you had to really look at yourself as a character, character Becky, and what were her strengths, what were her weaknesses, and how did she transform and only include life events that helped in that transformation. So there was a lot of whittling out and creating in that two years, but that, that was critical in getting it to the shape it needed to be for publication. Yeah, well, I read it. It was a gift um, to me from you through Marianne Singer as part of her uh, women's coach experience down in New Orleans. And I read it on the plane ride home and I just I couldn't put it down because your writing style is I was so drawn in. I felt I felt like I knew you and I felt like I, I was feeling your emotions as you were writing what was happening to you, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs. And um, I always feel like that's the sign of a great memoir writer is when I feel like I know you. And I definitely was like, I have got to meet her. I've got to like, you are amazing as a writer and as a, as a person and a human to be able to, you know, go through. So, so when you write, you, have gone through it, but then when you write, you have to go through it all again, oh, right? Yes. And so you have to be able to process all of those emotions all over again, and sometimes it's messy. So how did you cope with that as you were kind of like reshaping, doing the narrative arc and all of that, you know? It, it, was, um, it was difficult, but my sister, Rachel, who's uh, four years younger, it, it was a great support. She lives in... Uh, it, in uh, Georgia, I'm here in Baltimore, and I would tell her, you know, I'm going to be writing this scene of our brother's death, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, my father had written a book about his son's death, my Forrest's death. So that had, I had a lot of factual information from there, because that was a long time ago. This was uh, 1978, you know, is when he died. And so, but I told Rachel, I said, you know, I'm revisiting this. I'm getting into the mode. I'm trying to remember what we felt, what it looked like, you know, the conversation, snippets of it. And I would tell her, I'm, I'm going to write for eight hours. I'm going to come out at the other end. I need you to be there to talk to me at the end to make sure I do come out of it. Because mm -hmm. you're wallowing in, in fresh grief all over again. So uh, that, that structure of... I know it's going to be a tough day. I've got, you know, and I'll, I had all my supports, my Starbucks coffee and a high tuna for protein and all the things I know that would fuel me uh, so that I could get down in there and really relive some of the hardest times in my life. But I wanted them to be real to people. And I wanted to share that because, um, you know, it's, uh, we all go through, 
life as we, uh, difficult things in life. It's not as we planned, right? Correct. Uh, one of my dad's favorite sayings that I live by is what's planned is possible. And I really do believe that. But man, there's a lot of things that are impossible when you get down to get it. You know, you don't think your life is going to take this turn. So I hope it would be a, a book of encouragement because uh, it, it's possible to get through tough times. I mean, I learned so much about myself writing it and it's connected me with other people um, who've shared their stories that have encouraged me. You know, I, people, somebody's always got a, a story and it's amazing how many are um, life-changing, you know? Right. Well, I, one, one of my favorite lines in your book ever was grief is a strange companion. That really hit me. Um, having gone through, I had my brother-in-law died unexpectedly. Um, my father died unexpectedly. And then a couple months later, one of my friends died unexpectedly. So I had three things really in a row and, you know, it, it doesn't get any easier, um, but it is a strange companion. And so talk a little bit about what you've learned because you've had similar situation with your children, your brother, your family. Like, so what, 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 is it just, um, you recognize things and you can get through them quicker, like kind of the stages of grief or it's, it's never easy. Right. Um, and, and I, in my experience, you know, everybody's different with it, but my experience, uh, there weren't really stages of grief. There were more of these cycles of grief mm -hmm. and that I had to allow grief a place in my life. Um, I tried not to I call them, you know, if you imagine a closet with shelves, it's, it's not down on the, the racks that I use all the time. It's up, up there, but it's got a place because in a way, I think when we love deeply, we're going to grieve deeply for the rest of our lives in some way. We just don't want that to be absorbing and in the center of our lives all the time. But, but when it comes to visit, it's like it's a, a, a friend that's come back. You know, you see a butterfly reminds me of my brother and, and or you see a certain kind of ice cream reminds me of my father and, and, you know, a certain color of lipstick of my mother and it's right there. And, so often I had tried to push it away and it's like, no, just don't think about it. And then now it's like, it's almost revered. It's like, oh yes, she loved um, Cherryberry Brew life's uh, lipstick. And, and that was, that just, you knew mother was uh, on at her best when she had her lipstick on. And if she didn't have her lipstick on, you knew something was probably really wrong because mm -hmm. she didn't say that much, but that, that was her signature uh, so I do respect grief and, and it's, it makes it um, not easier, but at least it's kind of predictable that you're going to have mm -hmm. bouts, you know, you know, especially when you have a series like you went through, mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to get up before you're knocked down again. Yes. Yes. I like what you said though. I respect grief. That's, that's a good way to think about it. Um, you know, the other thing that, you know, I, um, I liked that was in your book was um, some of the things that you talked about in how to deal with anger. Um, and so, you know, talk about that and how you process through that emotion. Cause that's also, 
a not so it's kind of a messy emotion, but to stuff it down, then it kind of that's not good either. Right. And I, and I think, um, you know, there's a scene that I wrote, write about at, at my brother's funeral that that I was actually angry at him for dying on me. Mm-hmm. You know, how dare you die on me? And that's just not a real typical response in in fresh grief. I was 20 years old. My 17 year old brother died. He wasn't looking where he was going. He was waving to people. He hit a piling. He lived for nine days and then he died. And I was just devastated. But at the same time, and the, the last thing he wrote on his college application was I would change nothing, you know, and you just, how could that be the last thing that he wrote? And it just triggered all of this. I would have changed so many things and, and, now you've left me to miss you the rest of my life. And, and I was angry that he wasn't paying attention, you know, and I think we have to, it's another one of these acknowledgement of the, our humanity that we have these emotions. And I think people don't like to talk about it, but my advice is always find somebody that'll listen to you talk about it because the worst thing is to isolate. When you isolate in anger, or you isolate in grief, you're digging a pit, you know, you need to always talk about get people in the boat with you that are going to help you through whatever storm you're going through. And if they can be an asset to you, great, welcome them. If, if for some reason they're negative, you can graciously uninvite them, you know, because you need people to strengthen you when you're going through a tough time. And our friends have different attributes, you know, and some of them work well in some situations and don't in others. And, and then sometimes we're just so numb with the whole thing. You just, you just want to sit with somebody, you know, just to have a being place where you mm-hmm. can uh, right. be in a space with somebody else. So. Right. Right. So, so you had your, you know, the tragic death of your brother, he was water skiing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you have a son that had a degenerative disease that also then passed away. So what was that like being a, a mother having to bury their child? I mean, that's just not natural, right? It was, it was um, very difficult because it's another one of those unknown. When I pressed the doctor, well, what's wrong with Matthew? At three months of age, he, he began with seizures. Uh, we, you know, he was the second born. And so the monitor lit up at night with these strange uh, gurgling sounds. And I went in to find him kind of frozen in this Superman posture and they thought it was a night terror. And so it happened again and it happened again. Finally, I videoed it and took it to a pediatric neurologist and he told us it was a seizure. Um, And then he didn't start developing properly. He couldn't sit, he wound up being tube fed. So when I pressed for what is this, the the paperwork I got back said it was an undiagnosed disease of the central nervous system. I'm like, well, that's, I've just got a bad doctor. I just need to find somebody that can diagnose it. And the truth is nobody could, they didn't know what was wrong. And it's, it was kind of an introduction to doctors that don't know. And it's like with my transverse myelitis, they don't know the cause of that with Madison's autism. They don't know the cause of that. So it was this, this big learning of sometimes we have to learn to live with the questions, you know, mm-hmm. and we just have to accept, okay, we're not going to know this, but what life can I have despite this? Right. So 
when Matthew died, he was 15 years old, but he functioned at a four month level. You know, I think that grief was a kind of a chronic grief because every milestone he didn't hit, you kind of mourned that. Um, but he, he died on the same day as my mom, which was another one of these weird things. She died in one area of the country through one, from one cause and he, he died six hours later in, in another. And wow. Um, you just have to wonder at the mystery all of it all. But I do, I think, you know, he had the best life he could. And as a mother, mm-hmm. I think I can honestly say I did the best I could. With yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, that was tough grief. Yeah, I know. And it's also hard. Um, I have friends who have um, children with different conditions that um, when they don't hit those milestones and they've got brothers and sisters that are either older or younger than them who are progressing developmentally, and that's very difficult for for both the parents and the siblings. Yes. Um, so, And then your daughter, she was born after that, and she has autism? Yes, so Madison, uh, she's 26 now, mm-hmm. um, was diagnosed with autism uh, at a young age. We, because of Matthew's lack of progression, I was kind of sensitized to right. three months, six months. And when she didn't start babbling like she should, I got her tested right away. And we, we had early intervention with her. And as a result of some of her schooling, we met classmates that also these parents had questions and we we formed Pathfinders for Autism, which is a, a nonprofit that's still going gangbusters now after 18 years. And that's fantastic. 20,000 individuals each year, but it was out of this need to find good information on how to um, how to be good parents for our children. And, and mm-hmm. parents were sharing stories and like, hey, let's just do a repository. Let's let's share our stories that can help one another. Right. right. But, uh, yep, so she's, she is, hers is an ongoing, she isn't very high functioning with autism. She doesn't read or write or speak uh, willingly. She has scripted speech she uses for, for things. So mm-hmm. it's been a challenge to get good care for her through the years and will probably always be. Right, right, right. But again, living the best life that she can possibly yes. live. And that's... Which that's is my goal important. for her. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's achievable, and I think it's a realistic goal too. So then, you know, kind of moving forward in your story, then then you, part of your book you talk about your divorce, and this was somebody that you had dated in college at UNC, and you thought this is going to be forever and ever. Right. He was the man of my dreams. You know, it was, and we got married, and we both wanted big families, and we had four children, two girls, two boys, and, but these, it was a lot, you know, between Matthew, and then Madison, and then my youngest son, uh, when he was born, had a very rare disorder called alloimmune thrombocytopenia, which made him very much at risk for spontaneous bleeds. Uh, that could have been disabling for him. Unfortunately, he didn't have it. And, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, he, he, he has thrived. Uh, but in that process, we couldn't, we lost each other. You know, Joe yep. and I just lost each other in that. And we, we couldn't make it work. We wanted to. We had counseling for three years. But there just came a point where you, when you, we weren't 
who we needed to be for each other. And so mm-hmm. we divorced mm-hmm. you know? and on good terms. He's still very much in my life now. He was mm-hmm. so supportive after the, after the um, paralysis with the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done a, I think a pretty good job. Co-parenting now, right? And really caring for one another. You know, we really mm-hmm. do care about each other in our long-term. Um, so you're actually in a good space. You're yeah, in, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're in a really good space. Yeah. And then, um, you know, he got remarried and you talk yes. about that. And um, yeah, and I was just sort of like, wow, like, do you have the relationship with the new wife? Not, you know, and, and given all the circumstances of everything that was going on with your children, it was, you know, you were like, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to form a relationship with her. And, and I have to give them both credit too, because, you know, who, what second wife wants the first wife heavily involved in their new life. Mm -hmm. And she was very open to that. And she truly loved the children and wanted the best for them as well. Um, And we, we even vacationed together every, every um, Labor Day. We're, we're all together. They had another child and our, children get along great and, mm-hmm. and I'm included on that and grateful for that. And so Joe's kind of a saint to have his first wife and his <laughs> second wife and the children. We all just get along. It's yeah. Just, you make it work. You know, and it's, I really wanted that for my children too, because it's, I think it's easier on the kids growing up if they see the parents get along well and really care for one another and about each other. Yeah. Yeah, well, I had um, kind of the opposite uh, experience with my parents' divorce. So I, uh, I get, uh, and that, you know, I write about that in my second book about the shame that I had around the divorce and the dysfunction around when we would all be thrown back together when there's, you know, a graduation, a wedding, a christening, you know, the, the sort of typical family everybody's going to be there because they're so excited there's some achievement or whatever. But then it was like, just dreading when that was going to come and, and thinking this can't be over soon enough. So, I mean, that's really good that that was so important to you guys. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it is, um, it's hard to do, but it's worth it, it, for me, it was worth doing, you know, it was worth right. Doing that, so, right. Right. So there's another part in your book where you write a letter. Um, was it to your daughter and, future husband or your son yeah Yeah. so talk about that excuse me talk about that talk about that daughter and and the letter well um it was interesting at the wedding you know your mother of the bride and one of my college buddies who had you know received my emails you know i've been doing the email list for years and been writing the columns for years and and she says you know becky you're you don't, you don't say it. You're not going to say anything at the, at the wedding. And the, well, no, you're not really allowed. And you know, the mother, at least the protocol <laughs> at that time, who knows what it is. So changing so fast, but no, you're not really allowed. But I thought what I would, would do, she got me thinking like, what would I say if I were toasting them or had something to say? And so I wrote a letter to them. And um, so I have that, that letter. You want me I want to- you to read it. Yeah, please do. So Brittany's my daughter's name, and Brian was her her uh, husband to be, and is now they're now happily married, and I have two grandchildren. But this is how the the what I wrote to them. 
For Brittany and Brian, first of all, I want you to know how happy I am for the two of you. My heart is bursting with joy for you now, the young couple so much in love, and for the couple of the future, sure to be filled with the deep abiding care for one another that I see in you now. The scripture reading selected for your wedding has it right, of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Here is what I want to say to both of you on this, your wedding day. It is my daily hope and prayer for you. Brittany and Brian, from this moment on, you will face life together as you have never faced it before. You are a couple committed to one another for life. It is a special, sacred commitment. I hope you can find guidance from this one simple thought. Let your love be larger. Let your love be larger than adversity, than issues, than people or circumstances that threaten to pull you apart. Let it prevail, triumph, overcome. Release the urge to be right, the urge to win, the urge to remember each time you have been right and won, and let your love be larger. Love is all the things the good book tells us, patient, kind, understanding, but it is also the most powerful force we have. Use it wisely, cherish it, sustain it, and nurture it. Before you act, ask, is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it loving? And always let your love be larger. And as your circle of friends and family expand, let love teach you that it has more than one way to be expressed, that judging others' loving ways is a useless exercise. A more important action is to let your love be larger and learn from it. What can a different expression of love teach you about others? Respect it, honor it, and open your heart a little wider to include it, even though it may be so foreign to you. And with your children, remember that they are a result of your love for one another. Your love came first, then your shared love for them. Let love overshadow the small stuff Embellish the large stuff and wrap a layer of warmth around the cold realities that you may face. Love is what we're meant to do, you know. Share our lives with one another. Love can't fix all of life's hard times, but it sure can make whatever journey you are on richer, fuller, and most importantly, shared. Love each other despite, because you can, and always let your love be larger. Oh, that's just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that is just such good wisdom and guidance and, you know, I just, I, I, I love it. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. Thank you. You know, it was, um, it's really a kind of a culmination of what I've learned through the hardships is that so, so often I think we try to win. We try to fight and win. And sometimes the better thing to do is just accept it for what it is and learn to live with it instead of trying to beat it. Um, and I think that's kind of what rethinking possible means, you know, to accept a situation and rethink what is still possible in that situation. I didn't choose the title. In fact, it was like this, the eighth one on a list of, of that my publisher had given me. Mm -hmm. uh, but after I let it settle in, it's like, yeah, that's what you do. That's what you do when you're faced with 
the life you didn't plan is you rethink what's possible with it. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to put your book club kit and a link to your book on the show notes so people can find the book. Um, and um, like I said, I just I thought it was fabulous. I can't wait for your next one to come out because I just I couldn't I couldn't get enough of it. And I've told so many people that I think God, there's just so many nuggets and gems that you write about um, from experience, just life experience and um you know, how you are now living with a completely different circumstance than what you had envisioned. And even back in 1978, as things were, you know, you were in college and, you know, with your ex-husband at the time, with your brother, and, and you know, you, you, you didn't think that was going to be your plan. And yet you've been able to figure it out and, you know, create and craft a life that, you know, is going to work for you now. So, you know, you're just, I, um, you know, when I was putting together the idea to have this podcast, I, I was like, you were like at the top of my list because I was like, this woman has just, you're so resilient and you're so um, just fun and uh, positive and, you know, really making things work. And, and, you know, it's like you're living your purpose um, through your writing um, and your speaking and, and, you know, the work that you're doing in so many different areas, whether it's autism or, um, you know, just community um, or through your church. And, and so, you know, you're just, you're, you're, you just accepted what's your situation is and now you're like okay now now what am I doing and now where am I going and wh how can I you know be the best grandmother be the best mother be the best you know first wife <laughs> and on and on and on so you know my finale question is always what's the bravest thing that you've ever done and how does it inspire you today and for you I just I can't even imagine what you're going to say <laughs> <laughs> I always thinking about that and you know it this is going to be a surprising one, but it's, um, and I didn't write about this, but it's, it's, uh, it's three years ago. I was asked to come back to the Moorhead Kane forum and present on a panel. Uh, the, there were, there was a few of us and, and it, the, the topic was Winston Churchill's words, uh, when you're going through hell, keep going. And we all were supposed to talk through about our hell and what we'd gone through. And it was a marvelous panel. But I had never been in front of a live audience talking about my challenges. I'd written about it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And you can always go back and edit and, you know, rewrite and get a, opinions. And these were live people going to be asking me questions. And I was scared to death. So... The book was in the works. It wasn't anywhere, you know, I still had, I was probably in the middle of that Stanford class actually when I went back, but uh, I, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna, I had my thoughtful Thursdays, I'm gonna prepare for this. And so I sent an email out to my, my thoughtful Thursday list and I said, look, you know, I'm trying to prepare for this. I'm supposed to be talking about my paralysis. You all know my life. You've been on, many of you have been on this list for 20 years. You know my life. If you were in the live audience, what questions would you ask me so I can get used to that? So that was great. People asked me all different kinds and then questions. And then I practiced. I had live practice with some friends. And 
but I was still scared to death because you, you can't predict in a, in a right. live audience. You just can't. And so I went and the night before I did not sleep. It was one of those back then I had this armband and it would, it would monitor how much you'd slept the night before so you could see your sleep patterns. <laughs> so I got that the next day and it was like, I did not sleep at all. And I had the evidence you could actually, there's a post on that that shows how much I didn't sleep the night before. But I, once I got going and people were curious, but it was a, a warmth to their questions, a respect to their questions. And, and it really energized me in a way never before because I'd, when you write, it goes out and maybe somebody will write you back. But there's nothing like eyeball contact when you say something and like, oh my gosh, that hit. You know, that meant something to that person. So it wound up being one of the best experiences ever. And what that taught me in, in going forward is, you know, again, I was afraid. I got people in the boat with me that could help me. I prepared and then I went for it, you know. Um, so that, that I, I think is a, is a, the best example I could think of because it, because I still do that same process now, you know, um, I try to prepare for you, you know, I got my things together for you. I've got, I've got another one coming, going back in the fall to, to present to the, uh, like be a keynote kind of person in one of the topics there. Uh, and that'll be in front of a really big audience. And so that's okay. You just, get your resources, rehearse, practice, and, um, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, and, yeah, and after you are over that initial fear, I, I, I would assume that the more you do it, yes, the more your fear subsides. And it's great that you, they were so warm and kind to you. And, which you probably had in your head, you know, these questions are going to come out of left field, but you know, that's great. That, and I think it was smart on your part to throw it out to your email newsletter list to say, Hey, I'm going to do this. What kinds of questions? Because then you at least have a frame of reference of where, where people are going and what they're thinking. So you can prepare and feel a little more confident that, well, I know how to answer that question. Exactly. And at, at this point, I've done it so many times, it's a lot easier to prepare, but the process is, is the same. You want to, you want to envision your audience and make sure that, that you've thought through what would make sense to them or what would be best for them to hear. Mm -hmm. So, so what is next in terms of your writing? Are you going to write a second book or, you know, what's, what's kind of in your future? I do want to do another book. I'm just not sure what I had with these columns that I had written, I had thought about maybe doing some kind of daily, and I do, I have a daily quiet time where I read in the morning and reflect and write. I thought, well, maybe, and I love quotes. That's one of the things that I spent extra time with on the book is not only the chapter title, but a quote that's associated with it that helped me get through that. So to really hone in on that piece of what quotes sustain me, you know, and to Oh, yes, 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 yes. So that's kind of one book idea, which is more like a kind of a day book kind of thing. And then the uh, the other one is to go with the broader topic, which is losing without losing it. That's a good um, one too. Just to, because people seem really interested in the kind of the, the mechanics of that, of, 
you know, when you stop asking why and you move to how, you know, how do you get your mind going in that direction instead of spinning and this isn't fair and why did this happen? And right. So, uh, but I need a, a good chunk of time to just do that. And I haven't found it yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you on that part. <laughs> well, thank you for carving out time today to be on the show. Yeah. And I know our listeners are really going to enjoy it. So um, I wish you the best of luck, whatever you publish, I'm going to read it. And I'm sure now you're going to find some new um, fans. Once we put this out on the podcast and people know about you and they know your story and they know your book. Um, and so, um, and just in case uh, folks have, have a book club. Um, Becky does um, do virtual book club uh, meetings with folks that are interested through Skype. So I think that's a great option too. Um, and if you're, if they're local to the Baltimore area, um, it's possible that she could even do an in-person gathering, which I think is fantastic. People love that kind of stuff, being able to meet the author. And um, I've been able to go at a, a few libraries, you know, that have book clubs affiliated with libraries or even book clubs that, uh, went to meet at a library. The, the libraries kind of reinvented themselves as a real gathering place for community. Yes. So uh, that's that's another option too. I think I've got three of those scheduled in the fall. So, that's great. Yeah. That's great. All right. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Brave Girls with Tracy M as much as I did creating it. Each show is produced with you, the listener in mind, as you look for inspiration and motivation from other brave souls as you pursue your desires. I'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave me a review on iTunes. I read every one. And check out my website, tracym.com, for more free resources. You can also join my list and sign up for my newsletter right from the homepage. Until next time, stay strong, believe in your dreams, and go do something brave. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Brave Girls with Tracy M. and hope that you enjoyed the show. For more information about today's episode, as well as additional free resources to help you achieve greatness in your life, visit tracym.com and sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, dream big, believe in yourself, and let your brilliance shine as only you can do.